Once again, America is facing a crisis. Once again, we find ourselves torn by a situation that initially created a consensus, which is increasingly broken down along partisan and polarized lines. Once again, America seems at the brink of something ugly and incomprehensible in the recent past. In addition to impeachment, a pandemic, and a presidential election, now 2020 has given us widespread protests, rioting and looting in major cities, and yet another difficult conversation about race. And one of the most difficult aspects of this conversation is the way in which both sides are consistently talking past one another. In this episode of Blind Politics, we will explore the conversation behind the conversation, trying to cut beneath the vitriol, the bromides, the memes, and the assumptions of bad faith to see if we can unpack what is actually behind the progressive and conservative understandings of the complex issue of race in America. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome, podcast listeners, to another challenging and thought-provoking, at least I hope, episode of Blind Politics. I'm Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School of Government. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast provider. iTunes ratings are particularly helpful, but you can also subscribe to us on Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite other podcast provider. Our main site is on anchor.fm. You can also find us on Facebook at Blind Politics and Instagram and Twitter, although those accounts are not as active, at Blind Politics for Instagram and Blind P-O-L Nolte for Twitter. So, I have discussed almost every issue at some point in my time discussing and thinking about politics. I've written on almost everything. But the one issue that I've been very careful to avoid thus far in my career is the issue of race. And there are a couple of reasons for that, which are mostly personal. One is that, as someone who is blind, there is simply an aspect of the way race is experienced and thought about by people who are both white and African American and Latino and Asian or basically any any race that I don't get. It is not a first language. Race is a system of categorizing people based on certain aspects of visual appearance, particularly focused on skin color, but there are other aspects, I gather, that are associated with it as well. And one of the things that I've realized over time is just how much visual perception can shape instinctive responses in people who can see. And so there's sort of There's a way in which seeing something evokes an instant emotional response much more profoundly than sometimes some of the other senses can can do so. And so there is a degree to which as someone who just simply by virtue of not seeing people, it is more challenging to categorize along racial lines. There's always a certain amount of uncertainty when you are are sort of doing that. I I don't always know those racial categories and how they pertain to an, an individual. It doesn't mean that those categories don't exist. I don't know that they exist in sort of an abstract sense. But it is a much more abstract sense. 
And so the other aspect is that there are a number of the things that are discussed about the ways in which race and racism works in our society are not things that I would encounter because they're, again, visual things. Like the idea that someone uh, once was doing some training at their work about race and sensitivity training and stuff like that, and they talked about the issue of flesh-colored things, things that are marketed as flesh-colored, that this is a often reflects pigmentation that's more common for people who are white in the United States. That's not something that I would ever notice. The idea that something like Band-Aids has a color is itself kind of not something that I really think about for the most part. So, you know, there, there are aspects of that that I don't understand and that I recognize that I don't understand and I can't understand because I can't experience them. And the other thing is that, frankly, it seems like it's very hard to have a conversation that is all remotely productive about race in the United States because there are so many assumptions about what the other person believes or thinks or anything like that going into that, that it seems like it's very difficult to even have the conversation in a way that is meaningful and, and sensible and, you know, based on, on sort of really well thought out logic and principles and, and so on and so forth. So I've tended to avoid it for those reasons. And, you know, I, I don't want to step into something that I don't even know is a thing because I can't see it that might cause problems because I'm simply unaware of it. And so, you know, I want to say that at the outset, that this is not something that I have expertise in. This is not something that I claim to have any special knowledge about. In fact, I probably know less about race in the United States than just about anybody who's listening to this, because there are certain things that by virtue of experience, by virtue of seeing things, you have access to that discussion, that debate, that experience, regardless of your own racial background, in a way that I can't. I can't access it directly. But what I do know is politics and, and political science and political institutions, behavior, principles, and so on and so forth. And so as we're looking at this through the lens of politics, I think something has become apparent to me about the way in which we often talk past one another on these kinds of issues. And so I thought it'd be worth, in the midst of all the chaos that's happening, and all in the midst of all the uh, imputations of bad faith, which are even on issues like the proper drug treatments for a pandemic that we're in the midst of, imputations of bad faith are pretty robust and regular, so we should not assume that that's going to be any less the case when we're talking about something that is as controversial and challenging as issues of race in the United States. Everyone is just assuming bad faith before the conversation even starts with whoever you're having the conversation with, which is never fun to begin with, but it certainly has gotten more intense as we have seen the aftermath of what's happening right now. So I'm not going to comment on the protests I'm not going to comment on the precipitating incident here specifically. I'm not going to comment on sort of my thoughts on, on how our politicians should, re should respond, except for to say that I think that most of them have generally done a terrible job, and I don't expect that to change in the near term. But, you know, and, and the reason I'm not going to comment on any of those things is because I don't think I can say anything on any of those aspects of the situation that we're dealing with that is all sort of unique or adds value or distinct from something that anybody else has, has already said better than I have. And so I don't want to waste your time and mine by repeating things that, you know, uh, will just echo things that others have said better. Things like, obviously, this is an abuse of authority, the, the way that George Floyd was killed. I don't think anybody would, would 
reasonable would disagree with that at this point. I don't think anybody really reasonable would disagree with the fact that looting is not really a productive response to this, especially if you're doing damage to neighborhoods that are already distressed, businesses that are already suffering because of the pandemic. There's a very real chance that these events combined are going to do serious damage to our urban centers, to our urban cores, to the, the areas where people like this live. And it doesn't seem to me at all responsible when you're already having a situation where cities are going to get hammered because of COVID. People are going to leave the cities in large numbers because of COVID because the places that have been affected the most by it are high density, right? So add to that the fact that now you have this going on, and it's just an emotional thing. People are going to give up on the cities, probably in large numbers. And so if you care about those cities, then this kind of destruction is the last thing that you should be doing. But again, I think everybody reasonable knows that, right? And I'm not going to get into the permutations of why or how and in what ways we need to have this conversation in terms of, you know, black people should do this or white people should do that. Because first of all, it's not productive. And second of all, again, it's not really an area where I have any, any particular expertise. But what I do know something about is, is political theory and the principles that sort of underlie the perspectives that people have. Because generally speaking, I think that most people approach politics with what they believe to be good principles. I may disagree with the way they apply those principles. I may think that the way in which their views sometimes come out of that don't lead to positive directions. I may even think that those the, the things that come out of those good principles are horrific. But nobody thinks they're the bad guy, right? Very few people are the villains in their own stories. And so they've got principles that underlie that that they, that they believe are good. And usually, right, they are, these are good things, good principles, good values, good ideas that have been taken in bad directions, right? I'm going to get a little bit theological here on us. If you think about idolatry, right, most of the things that get worshipped in idolatrous cultures aren't bad things. They are goods out of order, not in proper order. They are goods put in the place of God, right? So we, we see, you know, things like fertility becomes fertility gods. You know, fertility is not a bad thing. Prosperity, people, you know, can worship the idea of prosperity. That's not a bad thing, right? You're trying to, to create prosperity for that safety, you know, security from, from natural disasters, things like that. And you're trying to per- creating and propitiating these gods to give yourself a sense of security. And you're actually worshiping the thing underlying the God that's been created. That's sort of how the technology of idolatry works, if you want to use technology in the term of something that humans make to try to achieve a purpose. So, these, but these things aren't bad. They're not rightly ordered, right? And so what we need to look at in this situation is, are there principles that underlie the way that conservatives and progressives, I don't want to use the term white and black here, because I don't think it's quite that black and white, if you'll allow me a bit of a pun, but the conservative and the progressive understanding of uh, how these issues play out. Because I think if we look at the principles, you can realize that oftentimes we're not actually talking to each other, we're talking past each other. And so where do we go from there? And I think that we also need to keep in mind from a Christian perspective that there are Christians, well-meaning, Bible-believing, basically Orthodox Christians, who ought to be standing together on this, who are divided by matters of principle, and those principles are good. And the principles at issue here are, I would say, gratitude and justice. So gratitude is one of the principles that underlies the conservative worldview. The conservative worldview is that we should be grateful for the legacy of the past, that we should be thankful for 
the good things that have come down to us uh, from our tradition that we've inherited. And that a lot of the conservative impulse to politics is to preserve that which is good that has come from the past, right? So in the American context, gratitude looks like an acknowledgement of those things that are special and unique about the United States. And there are definite truths to that. This is a perspective that I think progressives are wrong insofar as they discard it. There are things that are special, that are unique about the United States. And particularly if you look at the U.S. in a comparative perspective, comparing the United States to other societies, other cultures that have existed in history, there is something powerful and profound and unique about being an American. That there is a type of freedom, a type of sort of upward mobility. All of these values that we take for granted, right? The, the right to worship as uh, freely, the right to protest, you know, the right to peacefully assemble, air grievances to public officials, freedom of the press. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, you know, the freedom of journalists to give us all information, all the different information that they have so that we as citizens can decide. These are things to be, to be grateful for, right? Um, and to a certain extent, there's a natural element to this. People love their home. People love their families. That, in a sense, gets transmitted to the, the broader society. There's, there's a sort of natural patriotism that folks often have. And the gratitude is sort of the expression of that patriotism. And this is a perfectly natural, rational, and good impulse in politics. Now, on the other side, we have the idea of justice. And the justice here is, I would say, because of course, whenever you talk about the term justice, you have to define what you mean by justice. So there's, there's really two conceptions of justice. Classical justice, which is uh, sort of a, a right ordering of society. And also the more modern conception of justice, which has its root in concepts like equity, right? Things are, are equal, and people are receiving equal dignity before the law and under government. I don't necessarily think those two forms of justice are intrinsically mutually exclusive to one another, and I think both of them are also reflected in Christianity. There is, there's truth in both the idea of and the need for a rightly ordered society, and also the need for an equality of dignity under government and under law. Both of those things are good principles, and I think have elements to them that influence justice. Now, for progressives, um, it is more the latter category, the category of sort of equal dignity under law, that people are to be equal under the law, and that there ought to be a sense of sort of fairness in society. And again, this is a natural and a good human impulse, right? If you don't have this idea of fairness, of equity under law, then what you have essentially is corruption, is you know, the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must, right? It is, it is the idea of a certain kind of equity, a certain kind of equality, whether that is equality of opportunity, equality of dignity, equality of outcome, however you want to describe that, but a certain type of equality is important for society. And you can't really have certain liberties without it. And you can't ultimately have a rightly ordered society without some kind of equality, because otherwise you inevitably have something that turns into sort of a crushing hierarchy and a crushing tyranny, right? So both, both of these conceptions of justice come from Christian sources. They both have their roots in Christianity. There are elements of them that I think are certainly well within the purview of a Christian understanding. And so the cry for justice does not compare, right? The impulse of justice is not to say, let's look at ourselves in comparison to other countries that exist and, you know, look at how great things are here in comparison to those other places. 
Justice tends to look at things from the perspective of things are not the way they ought to be, right? There's a profoundly moral impulse to any quest for justice. Things are out of order. There's an order that should exist, right? There's an objective reality that should exist, and society is not right now in accordance with that order. That is fundamental to a justice conception of politics. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is also a good and natural and virtuous impulse. It is something that has led throughout American history to improvements. It has led, in fact, to many of the things in the tradition that for which we are grateful. So it's not that these things are always intrinsically opposed to one another, but there's a natural tension, right? Because if your primary impulse is gratitude, you're not looking for things to change. You are being grateful for what you have, for what exists. You're trying to preserve that. And if you are primarily concerned with justice, you're not always really thinking about what needs to be preserved. You're not thinking about those things that are good, that do exist in society, that do need to be preserved. You're thinking about tearing down the bad things. And so part of the problem here, right, is that when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So you, you start to change these principles into paradigms. So if, you're, if you are paradigmatically committed to gratitude, then everything has to be preserved. And if you're parad- paradigmatically committed to justice, then everything is part of a system or a structure that creates injustice. Right, so that becomes a problem. Now, everybody, nobody's fully on one or the other. Right, there's always a, there's always some sort of mixture of that. But those are the tendencies. Right, and so you can see how gratitude and justice, if taken to their endpoints, if taken to their logical extremes, will lead to bad outcomes. So for gratitude, the bad outcome is complacency. Right, gratitude is an attitude of thankfulness and an attitude of recognizing that we need to preserve that which is good. Complacency is an attitude that we don't need to change everything, everything's fine, I'm all right, and so let's just leave everything the way it is because I'm okay. Right? So it stops becoming a positive emotion of you know, recognizing that there's something greater than yourself that you need to preserve, and it starts to become an idea of I'm okay, I'm good, so let's not mess with anything because I don't, I'm not experiencing any problems. Right? Now, justice if taken to its extreme, can become a sense of entitlement. Things are unjust, so you owe me something. You need to give me something. I need some, you know, I am owed something, and I have a right to something, and I have a right to take something from you. Right? That's a sense of entitlement. Again, justice is a crying out because something is wrong, and it needs to be fixed. Entitlement is the idea of you you personally are owed something by someone else. Right? Entitlement and complacency are both bad. And you can also get sort of a, a, a separate subspecies of justice, which is more about sort of an idealism. Well, you know, every, if, if this is bad, then everything's bad, and we have to tear the whole thing down. And that's, that's a slightly different problem than a sort of sense of entitlement. But it is a danger, and it is, it is particularly a danger for people who take for granted that you can just sort of, you know, tear existing institutions down and something magically better will naturally emerge from whatever you've just torn down. And that's kind of ridiculous, but it is the way a certain segment of the population, a very, very small segment of the population seems to think, right? Burn it all down because whatever comes out after this has to be better than this. Well, no, it really doesn't. That's not how history works. 
Burning stuff down for the sake of burning stuff down usually just means that you have a burned out empty husk where there used to be something. And that you can't necessarily assume that whatever that if something gets built up to replace it, it's going to be better. Because oftentimes it's not. In fact, usually it's not. Read the history of the French Revolution sometime, where essentially, you know, the, the, the Ancien Regime was not great. There were a lot of problems with it. There were a lot of inequalities, there were a lot of issues with French society. But it got torn down, and what replaced it was not necessarily better. You had violent purges, you had all kinds of bloody revolutionary activity, you had absolute chaos, and eventually, you had a dictator who came in who was every bit as oppressive as the people who came before. His name was Napoleon, he tried to conquer the world, it didn't go well. Right? This has happened in so many revolutionary situations. Right? That's, that's a, a much, much smaller subset. I think, in general, what we're dealing with when we're dealing with these issues of gratitude and injustice is a sense of entitlement and a sense of complacency. Now, how do we think about these issues? Okay, First of all, I would say that a complacent majority, a complacent majority, is potentially more dangerous to the kind of society we have in the United States than an entitled minority. Okay, a complacent majority is potentially more dangerous to the type of society that we have in the United States than an entitled minority. Why? Because complacent majorities tend to be comfortable. They tend to be comfortable, and they tend to assume that everything's going to work out just fine, and that they don't need to do anything, right? And there's a saying that comes from early American history that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, right? So if you're complacent, you are probably not guarding your liberties as effectively as you could be. Right? And if you read the founders, their attitude is that these rights, these liberties, these things that they've built, these, this form of government is very fragile. It can't be assumed that it's just going to go on forever, and you can't get comfortable with it. It requires an active, engaged citizenry that is working actively to preserve that which is good and to remove that which is bad. Okay, so complacency is very dangerous. Now, entitlement in a minority is is not great either, right? So let's say you have an entitled minority, or, or even, you know, entitlement within uh, elements of a majority. But that is not as dangerous, because it can be met, it can be dealt with, and, it ex and, and to a certain extent, it's a sort of a natural human tendency, right? You don't necessarily even need to talk about it in issues of, of race, right? Any kind of, anytime you're looking at politics, there's always a certain sense of entitlement, like, this thing is good for me, so I should have it because I need it. Because this thing has happened to me, so you know I, I need something else, right? There, there's an element of, of this that the founders sort of recognize. Again, it's the idea of the spirit of faction, right? Factions are going to say, I get what I want, and hang whatever you think you need, right? So that's kind of the idea of an entitled minority, it's a faction. The founders expect that, and they built well to prevent it from doing too much harm to the body politic. And so, you know, I think I think the, the complacent majority is more dangerous than the entitled minority, because complacency leads to a sense that everything's fine, everything's normal, I don't need to do anything. Not only is this immoral from this when there's injustice happening, but it actually undermines the things for which we should be having gratitude. Now, I think entitlement undermines justice as well. I think that if you're so focused on what you deserve that you stop forgetting about what other people need and you stop thinking about the good of society as a whole, and, and particularly if you're not framing your argument for justice in that way, it's going to make the argument for justice less effective. And it also means that you're probably not going to get it because it's, very, it's much easier to be bought off if what you're looking for is you know, something for yourself. And so 
I think that entitlement ultimately is corrosive to justice as well. So both of these are bad. How do we combat the ideas of entitlement and complacency? And how can we get people from the gratitude perspective and the justice perspective to actually talk to each other in a meaningful sense? The first thing that we have to do is we have to move beyond this idea that the most important, that, that you can't talk about thing X if you don't have experience with it, right? And I said at the outset, this is something that I struggled with in terms of race because I don't have the experience, right? I, I recognize that there is a degree to which I can't experience this particular issue because I can't see. But we have to move beyond the idea that the only way to speak about an issue is if you have experience of it. Because if we do that, then no one will ever be able to see anyone else's perspective, right? You can't, at the same time, say to somebody, you don't know what it's like to meet me, which is a fact, but you have to listen to what I say and understand me. Well, you just told that person that they can't understand you, and now you want them to understand you. That's not how it works, right? So we have to move beyond the emotional idea that what's ultimately required in this situation is empathy, right? Empathy changes feelings. It doesn't change facts. It doesn't change the boots on the ground, right? It doesn't change the reality that you have. I do think that meaningful relationships across boundaries is important, are important. And I think that ultimately that will sort of come from empathy. But you certainly can't pursue empathy where meaningful relationships do not exist, right? If you try to force somebody to have empathy, it's not going to work. There's no magic create empathy button that works. And and we've tried. I mean, the education system has really tried to instill empathy for certain groups in the population for a long period of time. And as far as I can tell, it hasn't really worked all that well. So maybe we should try something else. One of my one of my basic rules of politics, if you're doing something and you've been doing it for a long time and it's not working, maybe try something else. So maybe we should try something else, which is to say, stop focusing on your emotions, your experiences, and you, right? If the conversation that you need to have about this issue begins with, as a such and such person, I stop, stop doing that, right? And I, yes, I recognize that's how I started this podcast, <laughs> but I'm also doing this podcast. And part of it is because I've realized that I can't, I can't just say, oh, as a blind person, I can't really talk about this, right? Because that's feeding into the problem. It's saying that the most important thing about having this conversation is your personal experience. Your personal experience is not the most important thing we have when we're trying to figure out like how we fix racial problems in the United States. It's just not. Yes, I know it's going to color the way you think about this, but we need to move beyond feelings and we need to move beyond experiences and move beyond the idea that it's all about your personal self-expression, right? Because that doesn't actually get us anywhere. So stop having conversations that focus on yourself. That's point number one. Point number two, learn to speak in a way that takes cognizance of the principles of the people on the other side of the divide, right? So if you're from if you're from the justice perspective, right, and you're trying to convince somebody who approaches things from the gratitude perspective that they need to pay more attention to this issue, how do you do that? You start out by saying, look, you're right. There's a lot of good stuff in our current society, in America. America has a lot of good that comes with it, right? And if you feel like, well, saying that undermines my argument, blah, 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 go read Frederick Douglass's What to the Slave is the 4th of July. Pause this podcast, go read that essay, come back, I'll wait. Great, now you've read it. So you know that Douglass begins with a very positive portrayal of the founders, a very positive portrayal of the United States. He enumerates all of the good things, and then he goes into 
But these things have been denied to black people, to slaves. You have systematically denied these goods that you experience yourself to my people, Douglas says. But he starts by enumerating the good. He starts by connecting on that gratitude level, and then he pivots to justice. And then, at the end, he concludes that essay by saying, and so, I used to think it was unreformable, but I've now come to the conclusion that within the constitutional framework, there, there are the seeds of getting rid of these iniquities, right? So, this is, Douglas really lays out a, a very clear path for how somebody who's, who's arguing for justice from the justice perspective can speak to those who are in the gratitude perspective. You start by acknowledging the things for which they're grateful. You pivot to the fact that those things are being denied to others. And then you close with a call to reform, right? And Frederick Douglass is one of the masters, right? He is one of the most important American political theorists of the 19th century, if not ever. And so when he lays out a path for how you do something, that's a good way to, to follow, right? You have to recognize and meet that other person in a place where you are. And if Frederick Douglass, somebody who was born a slave, can do that, then you, Mr. High on Your Horse, white progressive, can do it as well. And I'm not going to, you know, give anybody else advice, but certainly those of you who are from that perspective, that white progressive perspective, you need to check your privileged discussion of white privilege because it's not all about you, and you need to learn to talk to people that don't agree with you. Okay, that's the next point. From those who are those who are from the gratitude perspective, right? You can start by acknowledging that there are still problems and that there are still injustices in the society and that there are still racial injustices in society. It does not in any way take away from the things that the founders accomplished to acknowledge that their accomplishment was imperfect. Because guess what? The founders themselves recognized that their accomplishment was imperfect. All of them would have said, there's no such thing as a perfect government, but we think we've got a good foundation here. And you can say, yeah, there was a good foundation laid. And then we have gradually been trying to reform things that were in society that were not perfect, that were not good, and we've made things better, but that doesn't mean the problem is solved. It doesn't mean that you can just sort of walk away and say the problem is solved. Okay? When Christianity came into its own. It really flourished with the, with the death of the Roman Empire. It collapsed the Roman Empire in the West. It was maintained in the East, but the Roman Empire collapses in the West. And Christianity begins a project of reforming society along Christian lines and Christian principles. And that project took, on balance, about a thousand years, give or take, depending on where you think the apex of that was, depending on if you think it ever had an apex. But it was a very, very long process of reforming things in society to bring them more into line with Christian values. It took a thousand years to bring about and instantiate some of the principles that were first advocated for by, by Christians in the fourth century, right? So we should not assume, based on that histor based on history, again, based on comparative studies and based on history, that all the racial problems would be solved after a mere 150 years after slavery. We should not assume that. And if they are not solved, then there's still work to do, and there's still real injustices. So acknowledging those injustices does not diminish the gratitude that we feel for the good things and the good foundation that was laid. Rather, what it says is, let us deal with these injustices through reform. That we need to, as we are thinking about dealing with these injustices, do as little violence as, as possible to the underlying things for which we are grateful. And so you make the case for gratitude. You make the case for preserving that which is good from within the lens of justice. Yes, we need to work for justice. We need to work 
acknowledge that there are, are certainly are still problems in terms of uh, racial justice in this country. But the only way those problems are going to be solved is from within the existing structure and, and on the basis of the foundation that was laid. A foundation which gives us the capacity for reform and gives us the capacity for reform in a way that's not going to destroy or diminish the underlying foundations which we're trying to preserve. And ultimately, really, all conservative, all conservatism, at least conservatism in the Anglo-American tradition, is reformist to a degree. You know, the great statesman of conservatism, Edward Bur- or Edmund Burke, was himself a reformer, right? So part of it is, you know, for those of you out there who are conservatives, right, you need to stop saying that racism is fixed, okay? It's not. And particularly for those of you who are Christian conservatives, as long as sin is a thing, which is going to be pretty much until Jesus comes back, this is going to be a problem, right? We can't just say, well, victory achieved. Any more that we can say victory achieved about sin. <laughs> That's not how this works, right? So stop pretending like the job is over. But recognize that justice does not come at these, necessarily need to come at the expense of the things for which we feel grateful. In fact, justice is the best way to preserve those things for which we feel grateful. The things that are great about America are better if they are expanded to everyone, and if everyone experiences them correctly, and if everyone experiences them fully. And if everyone doesn't experience them fully, then ultimately you're going to get more people who take that revolutionary perspective, right? The perspective that we just have to burn the whole thing down because it can't be reformed. So if you want to preserve that, that which is good, you have to be open to necessary reforms. And that means actually talking to the people who are coming from the justice perspective seeing where they see the injustices, and finding ways to address those issues within the values and the framework that you are seeking to preserve. Okay, so, so learning to speak from and address the concerns of the other side's perspective. If you're from the justice perspective, gratitude. If you're from the gratitude perspective, justice. And here's the, the final point. And this one I'm going to say is a little bit more pointed. It's not just a a progressive and conservative thing. It's it's also an, a, a black and white thing. Um, and particularly, I think it's it's applicable to Christians. So, what's the unique thing that Christians can bring to this? And here, I'm going to get I'm going to wax theological again for a minute. I don't think the answer to this is the church equivalent of busing. So, busing was this idea where you're going to throw African American students and white students into the same schools regardless of where they actually live, right? So I don't think the answer to this is we need to forcibly try to desegregate the churches and have people go to different churches. Because frankly, worship styles are often very different between churches across ethnic boundaries. And that's not just true with white and African American churches. It's true in all kinds of different ethnic boundaries. And it's also true on theological grounds, right? I wouldn't necessarily want to go into the church of, you know, I I go to a church that's Anglican, that's a little bit more liturgically focused. I don't need to go into somebody else's church and say, hey, let's let's integrate with your church, even though it's completely, you know, non-liturgical at all, and and you you don't have that traditional kind of service. I'm going to be uncomfortable in their church, they're going to be uncomfortable in my church. And the purpose of, of church is to worship God, right? So trying to make the church serve a political aim rather than the aim of worshiping and glorifying God. I don't think is is the way to do this. But that's not to say that churches don't have a role to play. And I think the role that churches can play is that churches can provide a space where we can cultivate friendships across the divide. You don't necessarily have to go to church with someone to have a strong and real and vibrant Christian friendship that crosses the racial divide. And churches can work together to be incubators of that, to build meaningful relationships across the divide. 
and not build meaningful relationships across the divide so our churches can do projects together or not build meaningful relationships across the divide so, you know, our church can give you this thing and, and your church can do the, that thing with, you know, whatever. Building friendship for the sake of friendship because friendship is a good Christian virtue in and of itself, right? Make friends with people to make friends with them so that when something happens, when we have an issue that is racially divisive, where you've got protesters who are afraid of the cops, and you've got bad apples who are trying to loot, the churches can get together and say, all right, our white church is going to go stand and shield the protesters, and the African-American church is going to go link arms in front of the shops that are worried about being looted. And we're just going to stand there and pray, and we're going to de-escalate the situation. Why? Because we have relationships, and we can coordinate, and we can plan this kind of thing, because we know each other, because we know that we have common ground as Christians, and we have learned how to stand together, because we actually know something about one another, and we have relationships that cross the divide. And here's the other thing. The conversations, when you're making friends with people, don't have to be all conversations about race. Now, I don't know what it's like to, to be a racial minority, but I know what it's like to be somebody who is a minority. And it's, it's kind of expected to a certain extent that when you're meeting folks, there's going to be a lot of questions about what's it like to be blind and, you know, all there, there's a whole laundry list of questions that you always get asked, right? But it is kind of uncomfortable to be put in the position of speaking for a group that you may or may not represent. So don't put people in that position, right? Just first start my advice would be start by finding common ground. Start by finding common humanity. Find things that you have in common that build bridges on a personal level. And then from that, naturally, as you become friends, as you become comfortable with one another, conversations will happen. And conversations can happen in honesty. But by that point, when you've got a relationship that is meaningful with someone, you know this person is not coming at things from from a bad motivation. They may be coming at things from ignorance. They may be coming at things from, you know, personal experience. They may be coming at things from education, you know, that has taught them to view the world in a certain way. But there's no substitute for meaningful relationships in, in bridging divides. There's no substitute for having meaningful relationships between people in de-escalating situations, because then you have people who can come in and stand in the gap either together or stand in a gap in the way that only their community really can. But if you don't have those meaningful relationships, you can't do that. And it needs to not just be sort of clergy-to-clergy clergy meaningful relationships. It needs to be person-to-person. Person. It needs to be family-to-family. Family. Because, yes, it's very important for leadership in churches to do these kinds of things, but it's also important for just those who are in the pews, who are, you know, concerned about this issue but don't really know what to do. You know, having people over to dinner is, re is really, and, you know, becoming friends with them is really not that much to ask. And so, you know, that's an easy way that we as the church can make up some ground here. And is it going to solve the problems that we're having right now? No, it's too late for that. You can't, and we've learned this from COVID too, right? You can't fix a crisis in the middle of the crisis. You can only deal with the fallout and try to minimize the fallout as much as possible. But what you can do is plan for the next time. Because we live in a fallen world and there's going to be a next time. And so you need to plan for the next time so that you're ready for it, so that you're prepared. The same way that after this, after COVID, we're going to plan for a pandemic, right? We need to plan as churches, as Christians, to think about, okay, what are we going to do when this happens again? Because something's going to happen again, right? We've had racial tension in this country since very, very early in our history. I would, I would put it, I wouldn't put it 1619. I think the New York Times is wrong for a number of reasons, and I'm not going to get into that in this podcast because that's a whole different thing that goes into American political thought surrounding the Civil War and 
theories of capitalism and all of that, which is a fun podcast, but is, is distinct from this. But I would certainly place it at, you know, things like Bacon's Rebellion, where you have the first codes that differentiate between poor African-American slaves and poor white indentured servants, which, which sort of creates a racial class hierarchy. Ever since then, there's been sort of a, a racial tension. It's not going to go away, right? Something's going to happen again. So how are we prepared? How are we as Christians prepared to think about this and address this in a way that is going to be meaningful and impactful and effective and show the gospel, right? Because that's the point, is to show the gospel and show gospel reconciliation. And you, you can't do that if you don't know people, right? The, the biblical admonition is not love an abstract category of people as you love yourself. It is love your neighbor. And neighbor implies that you know them. And you've had dinner with them. And you've had them in your house. And you've been in their house. And you have a relationship with them. That's what a neighbor is. A neighbor is someone that you have a relationship with. And you're supposed to love that person as yourself. Right? It has to start there. Because if we can't even love our neighbors and build meaningful relationships with our neighbors, then it's going to be really hard for us to love people as an abstract category. And I would say that's kind of impossible. But again, that's maybe more of a theological podcast. So that's where the church plugs in. Right? Is that we can do that. We can build relationships because what unites us as Christians is more important than what divides us, right? Ultimately, race, if you get down to it, is a category that is imposed by human societies, that is constructed by human societies and imposed by them for various different reasons, in various different ways, and it changes over time. And it is loosely based on certain biological aspects, but only loosely, right? And as Christians, the most important thing about us is that we're made in the image of God and that we're followers of Christ. Every human being is made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect, and, and we are followers of Christ. And so there's an eternality to that. You know, race is not something that's eternal. It will pass away. It will, because it's a human construct. And all human constructs will pass away. But that person, your neighbor, is eternal. And the things that make you similar and the things that make you different, which isn't necessarily bad, right? It's not that those differences are bad. Those things about that person will, in some sense, persist eternally, cleansed from sin. And so that, we, we do have more in common as Christians, and we need to recognize that and build relationships on the basis of that common ground so that we can stand united when all around there is division. Because that's the only way you do this. You can't do this by programs, you can't do this by projects, and you can't do this by politics. You can only do this by people. And by people in the church forming those types of relationships. You know, we've tried politics. We've tried political solutions. We've tried having conversations, right? We've tried telling people to check their privilege. We've tried, you know, telling people that we live in a colorblind society, which I'm not, I, I, I don't think we do. I don't. I, I think that there are hundreds of thousands of, of little visual ways in which we demonstrate that we probably don't. Probably most of them I'm not even aware of, so I'm not going to speculate on what they are. But we do have that common humanity, that common fact that we're all made in God's image, that we are all immortal, that we are all eternal. And if you're Christian, that we are all saved by Christ. And that should be more. And we need to make it more. And that doesn't mean diminishing those things that are different, because those are part of who we are as well. But it does mean that that commonality of being in Christ, as St. Paul would say, where there is no Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female, only Christ. That should be more. It has to be more. Because it's the only way that this that any of the problems of sin, you know, racism or any other form of idolatry gets fixed. Alright, so that's gonna wrap it up for this episode. Not an easy episode to record, but these are not easy times. And, you know, I think we're gonna have some other podcasts that are not gonna be easy podcasts. 
because we are living through a tumultuous and difficult and pivotal time in the history of our and the life of our nation. Are we going to come out stronger from this? Are we going to come out united from this? You know, every day, if you're a person who hopes for that, your faith is in that is tested. But ultimately, it's up to us. It's not up to the politicians. It's not up to you know the people on the streets or um, anybody else but us. In a democracy, if you don't like the way things are going, you need to start by looking in the mirror. And we live in a democracy, so we are where we are. And so there, there are. We're going to have some difficult conversations in this year. We're going to have some difficult conversations moving forward, but we're going to have them in a way that I hope sheds more light than heat, that remains civil and respectful, that recognizes that we are all trying to build a better society, that we're all trying to do the right thing. We disagree about a lot of that, but most people don't want to, like I said, nobody's the villain in their own story. Most people don't want to do the wrong thing. And so we need to figure out how to come together to to do that and to do better. And I think we can. Because Americans have always done it in the past, and I think somehow, somehow, it's not clear how, but somehow we'll find a way to do it again. So, not sure what next coming podcasts are going to be. I, I still have plans to do maybe that foreign aid podcast at some point. Not sure when that's going to come. You know, events. Events, dear boy, events. They, they, uh, that, I'm not sure exactly even where that cliche comes from, but events keep catching up with that. So, there are a couple more things that we need to talk about. Not specific to this issue. I don't see myself doing another podcast on race unless there's a, a high demand for it. But, you know, there are some questions that we need to address about how we got here, how we got into this situation. The fecklessness of politicians could be a podcast. So I'm not, But I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly where we're going to go from that. But this is what we've got for now. So, you know, everybody, I'm hoping and praying that everybody is, is going to stay safe, be smart. You know, keep in mind in the midst of this that there's, all a pandem- there's also still a pandemic that we don't know how severe it is, right? So there's a lot that we still don't know about COVID. So, you know, I just, everybody keep that in mind. I'm not saying that I think we're going to get a spike or anything like that because of this. We may, we may not, we don't know, but there, but that's a huge uncertainty. And ultimately it's something that's driving the protests too, because a lot of people, you know, the, the, the bad apples as, as people are talking about, well, you know, you got a lot of young men who are unemployed and young men who are unemployed historically have a, a tendency to break stuff, right? There's <laughs> pretty robust social science on that as well. So, you know, all of these things are related and this is a crazy time. But we're going to, Blind Politics is going to be here for you as we go through it, and we'll all get through it together. So with that being said, thank you again for listening. Please remember to rate and subscribe. Tell your friends about it. Stay safe, be well. And, you know, prayers, prayers with those who are in areas that have been affected by all of this. And um, somehow we'll get through it. For Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte, signing off. Mm-hmm.